Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There is no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And we have back on our show today, one of my favorite guests, I'll say unabashedly. Um, Acharya Shunya is the first female lineage holder of her distinguished Vedic tradition. She is an internationally renowned scholar, teacher, author, speaker, and scholar of non-dual wisdom, Advaita, and a classically trained master of yoga and Ayurveda. She is the founder of the Awakened Self Foundation and the nonprofit Vedika Global Incorporated, which has platforms headquartered in Northern California. These empower, educate, and inspire a global community of students through online courses, workshops, and retreats. These conversations are furthered by Shunya's top-rated podcast, Shadow to Self, an award-winning author of international repute, Shunya's most recent book, Roar Like a Goddess, Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful, will be published by Sounds True, September 6, 2022. I highly recommend this. Learn more at acharyashunya.com, which is spelled A-C-H-A-R-Y-A-S-H-U-N-Y-A.com and awakenself.com. Welcome. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. It's such a joy to continue our conversation. I remember our last one. It was a roar one. (laughs) It was. It was. I've listened to it since and I, I just always, it is such great pleasure talking with you. I think these truths that you share are so timeless and so relevant. We need them so badly right now. And so I am so glad that you have written this book. It is just, it's incredible information. It's an incredible reminder and it's both, you know, anchoring as well as going to help push us all forward, especially women and especially the men who support and love women. So, which hopefully is everybody, but we're so happy to have you and I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, it's it's time to bring this this type of conversation from from our hearts out in the public space and talk about how the goddesses can make us women and all feminine identified beings just happier, Mm -hmm. more radiant and more empowered. So can we start out just by talking about the concept of goddess? Describe for us a little bit of the Vedic or the Hindu history and cultural meaning of God, goddess or goddesses. The goddess in Hindu culture is known as Devi. And Devi comes from the root Sanskrit word or sound div, which, which literally means lit up the light. And Devi is the feminine incarnation of the divine light, while Deva or God is the masculine incarnation of the divine light. And it is said that this divine light is all-pervading, Ishavasya, Idam Sarvam, everywhere, in every blade of grass, in every butterfly, in every bird call, in every human heart, the Devi uh, is present, except that we may be asleep to her. Mm-hmm. We may have numbed that light out and we become blind as a result, materially blind. But She's always there. And through goddess storytelling, through goddess conversations, through goddess attitudes and intentionally embodying them, through goddess lifestyle, our own inner light will become more and more pronounced and we will come more and more into alignment with this Devi who is everywhere and inside our own hearts. We Outside us, we can emulate her as a goddess like Durga, Lakshmi, Saraswati as an archetype as an ideal, as a deity, 
And inside us, we can find our as the callings and whispers of our own inner higher self. And just like moonlight is not different from the moon, the self is no different from the goddess. We are one. This was in the ancient texts? This was yes, we go back really, really to the most ancient text, Rigveda, which is at this point easily 10,000-year-old wisdom tradition that, you know, that was captured into a text much later on, but it's an ongoing um, combination of knowledge and letters and words and sounds. It talks about the Devi, Saraswati, Lakshmi, and Durga is first mentioned in the Upanishads, which are the which are um, attached to the Vedas. Upanishads are the philosophical renderings, while Vedas are uh, the songs of uh, uh, recognizing divinity everywhere. The the later section of the Vedas is known as Upanishads, which then finds this divinity within our own consciousness. And right there, we find the echoes of the devis, the goddesses. And their personalities and what they do for us, all living creatures, not just humans, but everyone calls out to them. We Just like we have a biological mother and father, we do have the right to have a spiritual father and mother. And the Vedic tradition like to recognize them as Durga, the goddess of power, Lakshmi, the goddess who gives us prosperity and pleasure and dharma and Saraswati who imparts us the ultimate knowledge of the self and inner peace. And am I right in understanding in the Puranas, in the later text, there was even some dedicated to the goddesses? Is that right? Yeah, we find the goddesses really brought out in the Puranas, which are much later texts and oral tradition. The Vedas were sometimes a bit intellectual for the ordinary person. (laughs) So a lot of that knowledge got simplified as storytelling in the Puranas. And the Puranas then are, Purana literally means the old. Mm-hmm. And it's in these old books of, of storytelling that we find stories of the goddesses and their mythology. Mm-hmm. And uh, my book, Roar Like a Goddess, brings those stories out and retells them for the modern people. Can you speak a little bit to the power of storytelling? What is, what is the use of storytelling so the stories, the ancient goddess stories were known as katha. Anything that is told, kathit, anything that is spoken is said to take on a life of its own. It has that light, the divita of the goddess. And so when it's told, it is supposed to enter you. And even if you're asleep at that time, physically, your ears are still awake and those stories will enter you and they're going to wake up that sleeping goddess. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was a child, I would listen to these stories in a simple hometown by the village bard or the priest. And then we'd come home and on goddess festival days, our mother would retell those stories. And our grandfather, who was my guru, who was a great yogi sadhu teacher in India, would tell that story with a little more symbolism and gravitas. And then we children would tell each other those stories. And then those stories came alive in my book, Roar Like a Goddess, where I'm sharing with the whole world mm-hmm. that through the goddess stories, we're supposed to wake up literally, metaphorically, in every which way and reclaim the life we were always meant to lead as modern day goddesses. Mm. And when you talk about goddesses, you know, in when I was in middle school, we learned that there were rel- religions that were monotheistic, like Christianity or Judaism or Islam, and then there were polytheistic 
cultures where there were many gods and goddesses. Can you speak a little bit to the nature? Is this is this a polytheistic view? Certainly is not. This is um, not even a monotheistic. It is a monism. It believes in one truth, ekam sat, one truth, vipraha bahudavadanti, expressed in different forms, uh, recognized by different names. But really, there's this one supreme intelligence, one supreme reality that is even beyond gender, really. Mm-hmm. It is beyond the masculine and the feminine division. It is beyond uh, Hindu, Christian, Islam. It is even beyond um, the material and the spiritual. It is really that one shining truth that has always shown before this universe was, is, and will be. Even mm-hmm. afterwards, it shall shine. Mm-hmm. And that one truth is what has taken different forms. And that's why for the Hindus, divinity cannot be boxed because if it is representing infinity, if it is everything, if it is all pervading, then how can it be only one person, anthropomorphological God? How can it be only one one thing or one animal God or a human God or a plant God? Let it be all. <laughs> and, and they were like... Um, probably 84 million people in India at that time. So they said there are 84 million types of gods, <laughs> you know, 84 million, you know, just let everybody God, God, yes. everybody. And even the deepest, darkest criminal has got God. They're just asleep to it. The mind, the ego is asleep to it. Whereas the saint is awake and playful with the inner God. That is the only difference, but everybody got God does. You know, everybody got goddess. That's one of the lines from your book that I thought, oh, we should have this on T-shirts and bumper stickers <laughs> <laughs> and mugs and pencils, everything that can remind us so that we can be brought home each day. Oh, I like that. So that we can be brought home each day. That's that's a beautiful line that I will borrow from you. Oh, please. do. <laughs> so there's and it reminds me as you're speaking, it reminds me it's a much more mundane example, but it reminds me of trying to pick paint trying to match paint colors. You have a paint color on a wall in your house that say is green, and you're trying to match this to buy more of the same green paint. But depending on where the light is in the room, at any minute of the day, the color will look different. So if you're looking for that green, if the sun is on it in the morning, it's a totally different color that you'll purchase in the can than when it's at night. And what feels to be on the wall is the same, but light changes everything minute by minute by minute. And so what I'm hearing you say is that these stories allow us to see different aspects of ourselves minute by minute by minute. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. It's it's like highlighting the deeper the deeper texture of the wall that the light kind of brings up. So it these stories also highlight the unowned parts of ourselves that we and sometimes we disown our own power. Mm-hmm. Or we disown our own ability to say no, or we disown our ability to be totally unapologetically self-absorbed in our own music. Mm-hmm. Like when Saraswati is a goddess who's shown playing her own lute lost in it. It's mm-hmm. really us being lost in our inner creativity, our own music, our own inner knowingness. Mm-hmm. And I feel like these stories, if we allow them to show us, then they show us in, they allow our inner divinity to show up. 
And as we age, another example that I think of is my, when my grandma was 93, she was saying, you know, Jillian, I look in the mirror and I think, whose face is that? You know, we are also always changing. And so if we can let these stories, if we can hear them again and again, then we can understand ourselves in these new and different and various lights. Um, I would say so, because I heard them as a child and I shared the story in my book, but I remember facing or having to face a bully and I'd be scared of her at school. Mm -hmm. And then Baba, my guru uh, said, well, ride to your school on your lion, like Durga rides on her lion. Mm -hmm. So in my imagination, I didn't walk to school that day. I rode on my lion and somehow I felt like my Durga was alive inside me. I didn't have to have a conversation with the bully, but the bully kind of disappeared from my life. Like she wouldn't make eye contact with me. And then as a grown woman, 50 plus, I went back to the experience and I realized, hmm, what must have happened? And then I recognized that when you know you are powerful, everybody knows it without <laughs> you having to speak it or be sassy about it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And when you know you're not powerful, everybody knows it, no matter how much of a show you, it's a silent communication with the world. And so as I grew up, I can get more nuanced in my understanding. And I actually never get off my lion, so to say, <laughs> be on it. <laughs> Even if I've had a bad day, I'm on my <laughs> lion. <laughs> One thing I loved about your book, talking about reminding us of our light and our goodness, it doesn't mean that we are perfect people. So that concept of Asura and Deva you know, the concept uh, that we are all a mix and we're figuring it out. Can, can you speak a little bit to those, to those concepts? Yeah, the teachings are always coming back to these two central metaphorical mythological characters called devas and asuras. Deva again comes from the root word div, which means uh, characters with light who embody goodness and consideration and sensitivity for others. And asuras are those who are self-absorbed and selfish to the point of being selfish and they're insensitive. And we find these characters in the mythology where the goddess contends with the asuras and protects the devas. So the goddess intervenes in those stories, which, which is really showing that you always, if you carry light within you don't, and you feel fragile, don't worry. The goddess got you. She's going to, she got your back. Mm -hmm. But then it goes on to explain how you can find Deva and Asura kind of people in your life. And then you should know who to hang out with and who to be more assertive about your boundaries with. And then the deeper texts and deeper teachings and then teachers like my teacher and I, we take the Deva and Asura to our own thoughts mm. and thoughts that pull me down and chop up my self-esteem and wound me again and again and don't need anybody's help to damage me repeatedly. These are my own thoughts. Mm. But these are not just thoughts. These are my demons. These are my asuras. Mm-hmm. And, and I call out to the goddess at that time to make me rid of those thoughts. And every morning I get up and I say, free me of the wounding that I do to myself through my Asura thoughts, be done with them. Mm. And then I have these Devic thoughts, which make me experience my boundlessness, my invincibility, my, my okayness, despite my brokenness, my wholeness. 
and my, my, my experience of my own specialness, despite any rejection I may have experienced growing up or, you know, just going through life circumstances. Mm-hmm. And those are my deva thoughts, my light-filled thoughts. They're my friends. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted this book to not just be a story of us good people winning against the bad people, mm-hmm. but it was also about learning and honoring your goodness and knowing how to be smart and outsmart the sleepwalking people in your life, not, not be caught up with them, learn how to assert your boundaries, mean your nose. Don't be over generous, over nice, over sweet, because that's what we are conditioned to do. Mm-hmm. But that's why I have chapters like, you know, when discontentment is a goddess thing to do, when roaring like with rage is a goddess thing to do, when, when questioning your generosity is a goddess thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to talk about that because we live in a world that's teeming with Asura energy, people, attitudes, ideas and even media suggestions. And so to hold on to your light and to make sure you're safe and you're thriving in it requires some relooking. And that's what the book is about. You had some incredible descriptions of violence, even that sometimes violence is necessary to prevent further, more egregious violence. Yes, because we really cannot sit back and say absolute nonviolence is the only thing to do. That was a great misinformation spread mm-hmm. from India throughout the world. And India never, India never held up to this. Vedas never hold up any value to 100% blind subscription. That's like being a slave to a certain belief system, even how good it is. Mm-hmm. Vedas always suggest judicious, discerned usage of a value. So while Ahimsa, paramodharma, non-violence is the highest dharma. There is another line which is rarely quoted, which says, but so is violence when in service of dharma. So if violence is being employed judiciously to, to fight unfair aggression, to not tolerate atrocities against innocent people, animals or planets or your planet, then then you are on the right side of the goddess. And I've written in my book how the goddess, like the nursing tigress, her fangs are bared only towards those who endanger her cubs, while the cubs themselves may lie at ease in her protective underbelly, enjoying her nourishing milk. Mm -hmm. And so we should try and emulate her. And we would never, ever be violent or even think of violent thought generally and be a source of great production and nurturance to all of humanity and other creatures that we share this planet with. But we would dare to bear our fangs to those who disturb our peace, our children, our women, our safety, and uh, the ecology of our planet. We would dare to bear our fangs. Can you talk a little bit about Dharma and even, you know, either Dharma straight or Dharma in the context of Arthakama? Dharma, moksha? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, especially for our listeners for whom dharma, the word dharma can be redefined because dharma has so many meanings. So dharma is a Sanskrit word and there is no one easy translation for it. So we have to speak for hours on that one word. <laughs> <laughs> but dharma comes from the root Sanskrit word three. 
and dri means to hold to sustain so dharma would then involve all those attitudes behaviors value systems that help sustain you your community your planet your well-being your health and everything that is amazing and goddess like about your life so sometimes dharma would for example for most times then it goes on to list things which could be considered dharma like universal friendliness maitri universal compassion karuna dharma is never for the hindu people or the buddhist people alone dharma is universal always so there is always room for compassion or friendliness or kindness daya or um honesty or truth so these this there's always a place for it and non-violence is a great dharma if we can just walk on this earth a little lighter so that we don't damage things around us we don't abuse our mother earth we do we we can live and let live with fellow creatures this is great and then there's a tiny byline which says and sometimes for the protection of what is fair and just and good for more people than just you you might need to take up to violence and this gives then permission for for example for a judge or a magistrate or a police or army personnel to do what they need to do now even those lines are being crossed today right now mm-hmm. we all need to come back to the consideration of dharma because dharma requires discernment of when is what is appropriate but without dharma our society becomes ruthless crude and um driven by impulse but dharma makes us go back and connect with our humanity and so dharma is somewhat about the action but it seems like dharma is more rooted in the approach so for instance um there was an example in your book about the person who bears arms but has no attachment to the arms or to the war but to maintaining the value of nonviolence using that as a stepping stone in order for justice in order to prevent further violence so that the dharma is the approach is how the perception exists within the individual as opposed to any particular action is that right i would say so for example most times i pardon wrongdoers in my life and recently i decided not to pardon but punish someone but dharma was in my approach so when i punish someone obviously it was done done in some macabre way but mm-hmm. i made that person face their consequences mm mm-hmm. and i made that person learn a lesson for their life mm-hmm. um because i'm that person's teacher mm-hmm. and i knew that i was embodying dharma mm-hmm. i was embodying the dharma of a greater soul teaching a younger immature soul that you know your actions have consequences there's you tell an amazing story and i'm looking is it kubera yeah can you tell that story perhaps Well, we have these this goddess Parvati, and um, she's a beautiful goddess, the Divine Mother, and she's married to the Divine Father, who is known as Shiva in mm-hmm. our in our culture. And um, it's their story. And Kubera was a deva, which means he was a being of light, and he is known as the royal treasure in Indian in Indian mythology, Hindu mythology. and he was a great devotee of shiva and so he was he had been praying to shiva for shiva to come and give him darshan or give him like a manifested 
exquisite. Like he could like literally meet God in form. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day she was supposed to be very kind-hearted and Shiva decided to just manifest out of thin air. But because he was visiting Kubera, he brought his spouse along who is none other but Divine Mother, Divine Goddess Parvati. And while Kubera was overcome by seeing his, his Ishta, his great God Shiva, he, he could not believe the beauty of Parvati. It was like her hair had dark tresses like the midnight sky. Her, her eyes were like the moon and the sun in either eye. Her beauty was like a million lotuses and lilies had blossomed at the same time. So he being, a, um, you know, he just being a regular guy, a good guy. But when he saw her beauty, you know, he's kind of his mouth jaw fell open. And then inadvertently, one of his eye just winked. Mm-hmm. He didn't mean to, but he lost control, so to say, in front of such stunning beauty. Parvati, the goddess, was offended. Mm-hmm. And what she did was she literally made him blind. Mm-hmm. And she walked away. Mm-hmm. So now Kubera was blinded by his own blindsidedness. <laughs> And then he was begging for mercy and whatnot. And at that time, um, Shiva said that transgressions of boundaries, even when done unconsciously, nevertheless are distasteful to the one whose boundary you cross because he crossed the goddess's boundary. So it is disrespectful and unpardonable. You're now accountable for two things, Shiva said. One, for the act itself, and two, for your state of unconsciousness, unconsciousness, that is a danger to you personally and to the universe. You're walking around being, you know, unconscious of your own body, your own eyes, your own winking eye. Hey, you're a deva. I mean, you're the, you're supposed to be a conscious one. I expect you to be more vigilant about your own body and mind as you interact with others. And so then, this was a teaching to Kabera, and this is also a teaching to the rest of us who, who put up with this kind of stuff. But for Parvati, you know, boundaries is big business as a goddess. Once was enough. You, get, you don't get to violate me again and again. By blinding him, she was literally maiming him from his ability to hurt anyone else. It was an act of compassion. Mm-hmm. It's like you got a weak, you got a loose eye that's that's gonna do this, mm-hmm. then I'm gonna remove that eye because I'm your divine mother. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna let you walk around with this eye mm-hmm. and hurt others and ultimately hurt your own self. And so sometimes you you know you're flowing the dharma of not pardoning someone or making them face some consequences. Like we sometimes we even do that with our children. But if you're, if you're truly loving them, it doesn't come from a place of punishing them from cruelty or insensitivity. It comes from letting them learn a mild lesson of consequence so that they can evolve into more mature beings. What I loved about that story was, first of all, all of us women have experienced such, and I put this in you know, little quotes, benign transgressions as a wink. 
and they are transgressions. So it is a problem. And secondly, what I love is that even if it's done unconsciously, a person is responsible for their consciousness. We are responsible for who we are and how we carry ourselves in the world and who we, who we can serve well and who we hurt. We are responsible for that. We are responsible. And that is what the goddess wants us to learn. And um, it's been a growth for me, I have to say, Jillian, because when, you, when, you, when you're a woman and you've been trained in the tradition, teaching the highest compassion, Sometimes there can be a split between us and we become quick forgivers, quick, mm-hmm. uh, over-compassionate. We, and we bypass the need to assert our boundaries or to distance ourselves from the asuras in our life. Or even after some judicious discernment, show an asura a consequence or two mm-hmm. for, for messing with you because then they won't mess with others either. Mm-hmm. And this has been a learning for me. And I learned that before I wrote this book. <laughs> and I did that journey from being this goody two shoes. I, I didn't do it for a posture. That's just how you get trained. That's mm-hmm. spirituality 101. Be good, be nice, be kind. That's spirituality 101. Yeah. But then spirituality 102 is be nuanced about it. Mm-hmm. Understand that darkness and light coexist. Mm-hmm. Understand that the goddess is both sweet and she's salty at the same time. (laughs) There are so many times through this book where you propose just to imagine what would our culture look like if all women everywhere understood, you know, concept A, B, or C, if all women everywhere could, were encouraged um, to follow Dharma as opposed to be pretty or be rich or be nice or behave or be polite if we were just encouraged to follow Dharma, which includes moral precepts. So this is not, there is no chaos in Dharma, but there's not necessarily polite, you know, there's Dharma. And you and you propose, you know, imagine what if women were encouraged to recognize their goddess nature? What if women everywhere, you know, I just love how in reading this book, I could feel the movement I could feel the movement of the population. What if, what if, what if? It's really, it's really powerful. Thank you. And I really hope, and there is a discussion going on right now about potentially creating some comic books for young girls and boys from this book. There is an active discussion on that happening, you know, with my publishers, with my agent, and there is interest in it. And I really hope that The younger we are, the more quickly we can get education in dharma. As you said, this dharma is so important. And when we we have the dharma, we can deal with the difficulties in life and the successes in life with maturity. And really what then is dharma is consciousness or a higher conscious or a more maturity, but in a very here and now sense. It's not just otherworldly and another dimension and you know it's not about not being part of this world but being very well vested in this world and yet having goddess like courage fearlessness and judiciousness to know when to look the other way and when to confront the darkness absolutely and And you had a line in here you know essentially dharma quiets anxiety yeah it does yeah it's amazing why how (laughs) 
talk to us about that. Yeah, because sometimes as a human being, like I can speak from my own experience as a mother, as a wife, as a daughter, as a daughter-in-law, and then as a feminine spiritual leader, teacher in the 21st century, I don't know what to do. Okay, there, <laughs> I said it. I don't know what to do. I, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, the, I have tens and thousands of students who write to me long emails asking me what to do, but I myself don't know what to do because life is so confounding at times. Yes. And the people you love most are betraying you and all sorts of things are happening. Yeah. And at that time, I look into my toolkit of dharma. And then dharma tells me that, well, for thousands of years, if somebody has, you know, betrayed you, you could you have these five options. Mm. You can be indifferent, you can be generous. So here's let's look at the options if somebody has betrayed you. Mm-hmm. You can, there are four dharmas attached to it. Mm-hmm. One is you understand their situation, that they're just human, they're being stupid, they don't <laughs> mean it in a friendly kind of way, just let it go. Mm-hmm. The other one is you can't let it go, but you could be generous. So you do like good karma and you just forgive them anyway. Like mm-hmm. somebody's backbited you and you just go, okay, I just forgive them. So that's a second level. Mm-hmm. The third dharma is it is known as Veda. Why don't you go ahead and separate yourself from them emotionally, physically, socially? It's okay. It's dharma. They're toxic. Separate yourself. Don't feel bad about it. You're just separating yourself because this encounter is not good for you or your planet. Mm -hmm. And the fourth dharma is danda. Go ahead and punish them. Mm -hmm. For example, send them an email and let them know you're not okay with it. There is a consequence attached to it. So look at these dharmas. These are good toolkits for me to handle a a relationship breakdown. You know, one, two, three, four. From total friendship to generosity, to equitable friendship, to generosity, to some emotional separation, to a final consequence and end of relationship. Then dharma got me. It reduces my anxiety. And at the end of the day, I can sleep with a clean conscience. Amazing. I would beg you for a comic book on that. (laughs) Our children are so confused, you know, and the television that we have often does not inspire thinking of that vein. This is, is, I wanted to talk about comic books that one of the ways I got the goddess stories was these Indian comic books that <laughs> my generation grew up with. We, we didn't have any, you know, Mickey Mouses and all, which, which are adorable, but I didn't have <laughs> access to what are known as comic books in the world today. Our comic books had these gorgeous goddesses and these stories were written again and again with the moral and the teaching and the courage. Yeah. And these these comic books became a source of, of great enlightenment to me. I was lucky to even go, go up to the scriptures. I didn't just, you know, get all my stuff from the comic books. But you talk to any average man or woman from my, my age in India, mm-hmm. and they would say, oh, yeah, I read that comic book and Durga did this or Lakshmi did that. Mm-hmm. And that informed my decision. So there's a way to make it more popular. Dharma could become our everyday tool. I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would, I would, I would invest. Please keep me posted. <laughs> okay. I look for stories like that for my seven-year-old 
you know, and I have, there's a book, I have 101 Zen stories. So mm-hmm. sometimes we read Zen stories and there's books, you know, there's many books with children's stories, but I love looking for stories that can remind him of his true nature, because there is a lot of reasons for children to be anxious in the world today. And I think that if we can root them in Dharma, if we can root them in with these goddesses, even our young boys, if we can have our young boys understand these goddess concepts, then that is the way to pave the way for equality and for for really um, optimizing the talent of our young girls. I, I cannot agree with you more. Absolutely. Yes. Because these goddess teachings are not just for the feminine gender, they are for the masculine and the non-binary genders too. It's for humanity. For it's humanity. for it, it is the next level. It's something to step up to, mm-hmm. conscious behavior. Mm-hmm. She's a role model of someone who is discerning and judicious and powerful at the same time. Let's just briefly talk about these guys. You know, the bulk of your book is about these goddesses and we've touched on many points but just so we get a flavor of three of these different of the three goddesses that you um, describe can you talk to us a little bit about Durga so Durga is um, is a powerful goddess she is shown as a, a single goddess she doesn't have a partner she roams the world supporting anyone who, who's feeling disempowered for any reason and if we just remember her like we just say Durga in our heart Durga itself her name is a mantra mm-hmm. and when we say Durga 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 literally means opening of the most difficult door mm-hmm. And so when, so some inner doors open up for us and because Durga is not confined to any stereotype Mm -hmm. and she responds appropriately to each situation, we ourselves, by connecting with her archetype and her stories that I share and her symbols, we ourselves become a little more free, really. And that's the source of real power is our own perception of our inner freedom, our inner permissions. It's all there. And the the soul power just springs from within us when we remove all the locks and barricades that we've put on it in order to meet the would have, should have, could have of society and what we've internalized. And, um, she she's always shown to support dharma she lives by dharma and yet she is um she's a fierce goddess but she's fierce in her convictions in her determination in her courage and um just adorable and then would you like me to talk about lakshmi yes please so while durga roars with conviction and courage or fearlessness or the charge Lakshmi roars with pleasure mm. because uh, she is a goddess who is who's just connected with mother nature. She's seriously connected with butterflies mm. and um, with the ocean. She emerged from the ocean and she she represents 16 types of wealth. And these these wealth includes the wealth of uh, the regular wealth. Wealth that comes from um, knowledge, fame, courage, victory, children, golds, diamonds, gems, happiness, bliss, intelligence, beauty, family life, relationships, love, morality. So I've just kind of chanted off a random list. But 
everything that could potentially give us pleasure mm-hmm. from money in our in our bank to friends in our life to good food on our table to aromatic substances in our hair and skin to flowers growing in our backyard to butterflies coming and saying hello to us well this is lakshmi and her grace upon us mm-hmm. and this goddess in my view because look the way she has become deified in india today is people worship her when they want a promotion or a salary increase or they want you know more money mm-hmm. but i feel from her mythology that i decoded i feel like she has showing us that the greatest wealth you can have is self value when you esteem yourself you prioritize yourself you champion for yourself you become wealthy because in her own story she once lived in the heaven and she was um taken for granted by the people who ran the heaven the devas and so she walked away in a huff mm-hmm. and she disappeared in the ocean and then heaven was reeling with disease and depravity and sorrow and then when she reemerged she chose vishnu who is supposed to be the divine father and uh, because she saw greed in every eye everybody wanted to claim lakshmi when she emerged from the ocean reemerged but she saw pure love and equality and respect mm-hmm. and not neediness in the eyes of vishnu mm-hmm. and she put a garland around him and she became divine mother so lakshmi in my book shows us ways to pleasure ourselves including sexuality sensuality adoration adornment and of course prioritizing yourself and your goals mm-hmm. she has she's a teacher of how to fulfill our survival needs artha our pleasure needs karma our consciousness needs dharma and our spiritual needs moksha so she's a giver of all of that mm-hmm. and finally in short saraswati is the goddess who teaches us the final lessons on self acceptance because she is the one who opens the doors to self recognition she is said to be the mother of the vedas the knowledge tradition she is the light of the vedas she is the goddess of speech of discernment of detachment and she gives us the power through knowledge to face darkness to deal with it and to convert it into light and she does not let us live in victim or aggressor consciousness but become sovereign beings and i have written in my story julian in the end i'd like to share with our listeners that i had dealt with some trauma through the breakdown of my first marriage and and then i had not dealt with it but with saraswati's help i dealt with it mm-hmm. and i now walk on the world stage with that broken part of me mm-hmm. connected with that saraswati part of me very in great pride and great joy mm-hmm. and she finally showed me that i need not be perfect outwardly um i can come to a place of great balance within me with all parts of me broken and unbroken beautiful you mentioned at one point losing your mother quite early yeah um that must have had such a deep impact on you and i'm curious about how these stories tie you back to her and and how you've managed that grief and loss yeah 
because she was the main storyteller in the way I've shared them in the book and because she was a roaring goddess herself and because she raised me and my sister to be comfortable goddesses in our skin in the 1960s of India, still steeped in patriarchy. I think this book is an ode to my mother and I've cried gobs writing it. I did not deal, I thought I dealt with it really well because sometimes children you know, they kind of, it seems like they've recovered from something, Mm -hmm. but what I'd done was really suppressed it Mm -hmm. or just kind of layered it with other life stuff Mm -hmm. as I grew older. But I have done the Saraswati work of reclaiming her. And now as Mm -hmm. Durga, my inner Durga is awake. I don't mind sharing that. I don't have to pretend that I'm a spiritual teacher. So I'm beyond grief. You know, Mm -hmm. that's just, that's just fear to pretend like that. Like Lakshmi, I'm I'm in well-being with that grief. I have grief, but I have well-being with it. Mm-hmm. And like Saraswati, I have peace with it because there is a gap in my life that I could never fulfill. Mm-hmm. I'm peaceful with it. And now I'm fulfilling it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I'm fulfilling it by being a mothering teacher through mm-hmm. my knowledge and by mothering myself above all through this knowledge. And through rewriting these stories that she would tell me while I was just like kind of cuddling with her in bed, I would listen to those stories. And now by writing this book, I don't know how many daughters I'm talking to for the future. It is, it is particularly personal for me. I just lost my mom in November, Mm. very unexpectedly. And so, you know, to read about women and to think about how I was trained and to think about what my mother has passed to me, what your mother has passed to you. Um, the importance of lineage is, is, is foundational. It's foundational. Yes. indeed. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your vulnerability. Yeah. That's a whole nother show, but here we are at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Just one last discussion here, unless there's anything you'd like to add, but um, I wanted to focus on the importance of the goddesses for us, for all of us, um, for all of us across the gender spectrum. But I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit here at the end, specifically to what patriarchy is, what it means, how we got here, and why it's not good for any of us. I didn't want to focus on that in the show because if you're skiing, and you only look at the trees and that's what you'll hit. So you really have to look for the spaces where you want to go. And what is, I think, most relevant for us is to reconnect to our goddess nature. Um, but I do think it's relevant to talk about, you know, these woods that um, can hold danger for us in this patriarchy. And wondering, could you speak just a little bit about that, please? Yeah, patriarchy is where we are right now on our planet, where a male point of view, a perspective, and a male narrative of our life has been dominant. And I want to quote Mira Atkinson's writing because I quoted her in my book too. Mm -hmm. And she says that we must not merely decorate our cage. We can't pretend all is well. This is the discernment. But this is my writing. And then she goes on to say, misogyny slash patriarchy isn't about hating women. It's about correcting any woman who step outside their place. So there was this desire in brackets I'm speaking to Mm -hmm. kind of keep women in their place so that the male narrative and the male 
position and the male perspective could flourish. So then Mira goes on to say, we need to snap out of the fantasy that rape and other violent crimes are aberrations in an otherwise fundamentally commendable and fair society. So she questions that. She says, we need to face the fact that abuses and offenses like these are logical and predictable outcomes offer, now listen to this, deeply troubled social system built on the patriarchal belief that some individuals by virtue of their sex organs, skin pigmentation, physical normalcy or non-normalcy, but they are normal, are inherently superior and more entitled than others. So this is a skewed worldview. And because of this skewed worldview, it's not like anybody consciously chooses to act from patriarchy or embody misogyny. It just happens that there is this inherent sense of superiority that stems from this. And then women too participate in it by allowing it to flourish and even support that patriarchal version. So patriarchy is not just brutal men going against vulnerable women. It is men and women and people of any gender who can choose skewed version of equitability, who can inherently prefer certain genitals, skin colors, or, you know, um, a certain body type over others. Mm -hmm. And this is a kind of obstacle for us because we internalize it. I've written how in my book, it's like a virus and it comes, catches you. And though I was raised in a bubble of a progressive family uh, when I got married the first time, and even as I live in different parts of the world, I encounter this patriarchy and I have to keep checking for any conditioning that erupts within me to take that second place. I think I've checked enough and I'm no longer taking the second place, but I can never be too careful. I got to check again and again, because it's, it's, you know, if you, if you are in a pandemic or something, you got to wear your mask and you got to wash your hands. Yes. Yes. It was shocking to me. I went to an all-girls school for nine years from fourth grade through senior year in high school. And so when I went to college my first year, I was shocked at how different men and I had only been in school with women. So I was used to women speaking up. I was used to women interrupting. I was used to women, you know, doing all sorts of things. That's how I had been trained in, in academically. Um, and when I got to college, I was shocked in my first classes about the ways that men felt like they should speak and just say things, but didn't really think. And there were smart women in my class who just sat there quietly. And I just thought, what is going on here? It was like entering a twilight zone. And I really, I I mean, I'll be honest, I finally sort of got tired and irritable and took the reins and just talked and talked and talked. And I, the teacher, this male teacher continued to interrupt me. I mean, I was like just turned 18 and he finally pulled me aside one day and said, you have to stop talking. And I said, well, then you have to start teaching because it was enough was enough. <laughs> he was Interesting, right? Me. Enough was enough. Yeah. Well, that's a Durga behavior. That's a goddess behavior of reclaiming your voice. So people ask me, what is the roar? The roar is reclaiming your voice. You are no longer willing to be silent and serene and content with the way things were. Yeah. And you didn't do it to be a rebel or to be a nuisance. And because you spoke up, so many people may have benefited from it. So this is what I define as 
conscious anger in my book versus unconscious anger. Mm -hmm. This is conscious anger. Somebody had to channel it and act from it. The way you described the roar, again, it's like the colors of the paint lit, you know, that present differently with different light on them. The roar can be the celebratory song. The roar can be the battle cry. The roar can be the serene, the serenity. The roar can be for pleasure, just sheer pleasure. Uh, we are such multifaceted beings and tapping into that beyond, um, even when you talk about um, the goddess Rati, can you speak a little bit about her? The goddess Rati is an incarnation of goddess Lakshmi. She's said to be the goddess who comes alive through sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. And it is said that every time we have an orgasm, we humans, it is she who's having the <laughs> pleasure through us. So she kind of shapeshifts and comes into play in every orgasmic union. Kind of like that. I think it's really cool. <laughs> and, yeah. And and so many sexual positions and sexual toys, because the Vedas talk about sexual toys mm -hmm. and sexual positions and sexual aphrodisiacs begin with the name Rati. Mm -hmm. and it's kind of nice. And, and I, I love, love how a goddess is connected to such a deeply intimate sexual mm -hmm. expression of our humanity rather than it being you know, painted as sinful, it's divine. And I love that she is a shapeshifter. So there is no one body type that is most enjoyed. There's no one shape. There's no one size of any body part that is ideal. It is the shapeshifting that is so important to the pleasure. I thought that was remarkable. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, these goddesses clearly have so much to teach us. And I am so grateful that you've told these stories and that you've shared your knowledge and that you continue to stand on this international stage um, and speak truth to power. I'm really grateful personally and for my, for my family, for my young son, for our patients. Um, and I think for our audience today, you have so much to offer. And thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So thank you for listening today with Acharya Shunya. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can get more information about Acharya Shunya at her website, acharyashunya.com, A-C-H-A-R-Y-A-S-H-U-N-Y-A.com and awakenself.com. You can find more about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. Please be sure to share this show with your friends. We welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together and we are committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Partyfish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org.